1: well, we've had some monsoon storms recently, and and you know I have shared before how we moved here about a year ago, and I'd never really had been a part of a monsoon storm like what we're experiencing now. And this last week, where I live in San Tan Valley, is about forty five minutes southeast of Phoenix. We had uh, winds so fierce that the trees were torn out of the ground and lifted up and uprooted and horizontal, you know, laying on the ground and one tree had crashed through a brick wall and one of my neighbors had a 20-foot trampoline and that just sailed in the air like a frisbee and ended up in a resting place vertically <laughs> by the side of his house. So flash flood warnings and uh, I really love the desert. You're just never a dull moment around here. And <laughs> So thank you for joining us. As I think some of you know, we have a ministry that helps people with issues with porn addiction and adultery, and we do counseling and groups and uh, two-day intensives and minister to the wives as well as the men. And recently, I've been noticing we're getting an increasing amount of contacts from teenagers who are addicted to pornography and parents writing in say, "Hey, my teen is addicted. You know, what can you do to help?" And we offer counseling, so we do work with teens. But I'm also thinking about we need to do something a bit more than that, and which means uh, coming up with groups and uh, a process to walk them through both the parent and the teen, because uh, um, parents need help on understanding how to walk through this in the right way with their their youth and so we're we're looking at that and I want you to know that we hear that and at the same time consider that that the porn epidemic gets started at a young age anything from age 7 to 8 all the way up so parents you want to be talking to your kids about this and having the sex talk with them as early as age 8 if you get much beyond age 8 it's too late because most kids, a lot of kids nowadays are getting smartphones as early as age six. So your sweet little boy or girl at school who you may not have given a phone is getting exposed to things you wouldn't want them to whether you you know know about it or not. So you need to be aware of this. And <clears throat> So today I want to get into a story of one of the most powerful – Spiritual awakenings in the last hundred years, and the Hebrides Islands are a cluster of islands west of Scotland, and Lewis is the biggest island there. and And there's a, there's a Christian community there, and I believe today the the population is around fifty thousand. And back in 1949, the churches were being alarmed. Because basically, they had no use coming to church anymore. And they were asking themselves, what is going on? And back in 1949, the big things they were alarmed about were people, young people going to the bars, going to dance halls, um, going to movie theaters. Those were the distractions that the churches were nervous about that was keeping them away and... Either choking the message or distracting them or f- drawing them into sins of different types. And so what happened was a group of ministers got together and they published an open letter in the local Gazette. And I'm going to read you this letter now. So this was published in 1949 in Scotland, in the Humbrides Islands. The Presbytery of Lewis having taken into consideration the low state of vital religion within their own bounds and throughout the land generally, call upon their faithful people and all their congregations to take a serious view of the present dispensation of divine displeasure manifested. Not only in the chaotic conditions of international politics and domestic economics, in morality, but also and especially in the lack of spiritual power from gospel ordinances. And to realize that these things plainly indicate that the Most High God has a controversy with the nation. They note especially the growing carelessness towards Sabbath observance and public worship, the light regard of solemn vows and obligations so that the sacraments of the church especially that a baptism in too many cases to be an offense to God rather than a means of grace to the recipients. And the spreading abroad of the spirit of pleasure, which is taking hold of the younger generation, that all regard for anything higher appears with very few expect, ex- exceptions to have been utterly dismissed from their thoughts. And I'm just going to reject here, this is very parallel to where we are today, We're seeing more and more surveys showing that youth are walking away from the church or they don't even care whether there is a God or not. And one survey that just came out here locally said that I think almost half of millennials don't care if there's a God, don't care about a church denomination or anything, and caught up in pleasures, um, choked with video games, choked with pornography, choked with smartphones and distractions and so that's very parallel to what we're going through today so i'll continue the presbytery affectionately pleads with their people especially the youth in the church to take these matters to heart and to make serious inquiry as to what must be the end result should there be no repentance and they call upon every individual as before god to examine his or her life in light of that responsibility which pertains to us all, that haply in the divine mercy we may be visited with the spirit of repentance and may turn again unto the Lord, who we have so grieved with our iniquities and waywardness. Especially would they warn their young people of the devil's man traps, mainly the cinema and the public house. And so they're war- warning against movies, And public house meaning like bars and dance halls. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, wow, we don't really warn people about these things because we don't want to turn people off and have them think we're legalists. But movies and the content, I mean, seeking out and making the pleasures of this world can choke the spiritual life. And that they call them the devil's man traps. And we don't really talk about this in this culture enough that pleasure and entertainment are choking a lot of people including in the church and so that was the end of that that post they did in the gazette and but even in spite of that there was no there was nothing going on other than they kept doing the same thing over and over again they had been doing which is having their church church meetings and you know praise time and, and the message and So there are two women, Peggy Smith, age 84, and her sister, Christine Smith. They lived in a small cottage in Barvis there on the the island of Lewis. And Peggy was blind, and her sister was riddled with arthritis, so um, they couldn't go to church. But these two women were prayer warriors and intercessors like no other. And because of this, they were extremely close to God, extremely sensitive to the Spirit. And one night, while they're praying, Peggy's given a vision of the churches in the island of Lewis, packed with youth, and she sees this clearly. And then she sees a vision of an unknown minister speaking from the pulpit. And then she's given Isaiah 44.3, "'For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty.'" and floods upon the dry ground. So Peggy, eighty-four year old Peggy, <laughs> calls one of the parish ministers over and his name was a Mr. McSee and he you know tried the normal things to to attract youth with youth events and to no avail and and I'm gonna quote you. Peggy sends for Mr McVee and she says to them him, I'm sure Mr McSee, that you're longing to see God working. Without what about calling your office bearers together and suggesting to them that you spend two nights a week waiting for God in prayer. You've tried mission, you've tried special evangelists, but Mr. McSee, have you tried God? And it stunned them. And so what she told them is two days two nights a week, Tuesday night and Friday night, we will pray from ten PM to four A. M. So Peggy and Christine are gonna pray in their cottage from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., those two nights a week, and she challenged that minister to have members from their church do the same. So Mr. McSee took her up, and a group of men, him and a group of men, started praying in a barn. And 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., and this went on for several months. And then during one of the men's prayer meetings in the barn, a young man stood up And he started reading from Psalm 24 where it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord. And the man, he suddenly shuts his Bible and then he looks at the others and he says, It seems to me this is just so much humbug to be praying as we are waiting if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. My dear brothers, let's l- take that to heart. And then he prayed himself, God, are my hands clean, is my heart pure? And then suddenly the guy dropped to the ground, and there was a powerful sense of the Lord in the room, and and that's what began to detonate one of the greatest spiritual awakenings of the last 150 years. And And then just a few days later, they had known a minister in the mainland of Scotland named Duncan Campbell. And Peggy called McSee back to her and and told her told him to send a letter to Duncan Campbell on the mainland. And, and Duncan Campbell replied and said, I'm too busy and I can't come. And Peggy says to McSee, she says, Mr. McSee, that is what that man is saying, that he can't come. But God has told me something else. He will be here within a fortnight. <laughs> and Duncan Campbell at the time at a Christian convention all of a sudden got canceled and his schedule opened wide. And then the next thing you know, just a few days later, he's on a ferry for what he thought was going to be a 10-day trip to Lewis Island. Well, that he ended up staying for two years. And then... And this is <clears throat> this is so this shows the intensity of of their mindset, so Duncan Campbell's on the ferry, and he steps off the ferry, and one of the guys from the church meets him, um an elder gentleman, and he says, "Mr. Campbell, can I ask you this question? Are you walking with God?" And Duncan immediately saw that these people are dead serious. And and Campbell replied, and he said, well, I think I can say this, that I fear God. And then the guy said, well, if you fear God, then that will do. And can you imagine going into church and somebody asking you, are you walking with God? That right right there is a spear of conviction for all of us to ask ourselves, are we really walking with God or are we just kind of going through the motions and playing church? And so they took this was late at night, and so at 9 o'clock, they take Duncan Campbell to church. He gives a message, and nothing spectacular happens. And think about—remember, during this time, Peggy and her sister are still praying. and The men have been still praying. These prayer meetings have been going for two months. Duncan Campbell gives a message. <clears throat> he finishes around midnight— and he's he they open the doors for him to leave, and there are seven hundred people outside of the church at midnight. That gives me goosebumps just to think about, and they charge in the doors and the and the, there's a lot of youth there there are people who have been in bars, and all of a sudden they have this god consciousness that The president of God was grabbing them and pulling them there in bars and dance halls and from all over the island, and they they charged church, and there was a sense of the fear and terror of the Lord. And and they're in there, and some of them are on their knees, and they're begging God for mercy. There is a fear of where they're going to be in eternity, and that's, that's when the uh, what is known as the Hebrides Revival really kicked off in, in power and earnest. And, and so for the next two years, it was more of the same of that. There, people would be alongside the road and, and then all of a sudden be grabbed with the conviction and even a terror of a fear of their eternal destiny. And Duncan wrote letters and he wrote a book About this later, what he was seeing is people were crying out to God. God, please have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. Please don't send me to hell. God, is there anything for me? He wrote this. He says, now, where did the people come from? How did they know that a meeting was in progress in the church? This was that night where the 700 people there. He says, well, I cannot tell you, but I know this, that they came from all over. Were you to ask some of them today, what is it that moved you? They couldn't tell you. Only that they were moved by a power they could not explain, and the power is too hard to understand, and they were hell deserving sinners. Of course, the only place they could think of where they might find help was the church. And here they were, between six and seven hundred people. They had been at a dance that night in the dance hall, and while the young man prayed in the aisle, the power of God moved in that dance hall, and the young people, over a hundred of them, Fled from the dance as those fleeing from a plague and made for the church. I tried to get up into the pulpit, but I found the way blocked with young people who'd been at the dance. And I went into the pulpit, I found one young woman, a graduate of a university, who was at the dance, and she's lying on the floor of the pulpit crying out, Is there nothing for me? Is there nothing for me? Is there nothing for me? And God was at work. And that old lady's vision, Peggy Peggy's, is now actual and real. A church crowded with young people as well as old. So that church meeting went until four a.m. And he talked. He gave story after story of people in the fields on their knees, begging and crying out to God for mercy. And and this went on for a couple years, and many came to Christ. And I think that we have a misconception of what revival is every once in a while i'll see somebody saying we're going to have a revival meeting we're going to have a revival conference and what happened in hebrides those couple years is it was sparked by all-night prayer meetings by men and women who were fully committed to holiness and sanctification And seeking God with passion and intensity and fervent prayer. No sermons triggered it. There was no special events, no conferences, no DVDs, no social media or YouTube videos. It was just people crying out to God after they had seen the desperate straits they were in with the youth and how they had pretty much fallen away. And from that, from that time of prayer, the President of God just. the presence of God descended on those islands and he just grabbed people with the terror of the fear of hell and the, the fear of where am I going and it was a, I would love to have been there I would and those prayer meetings went through the whole two years that this was going on and Campbell wrote that uh, there there were prayer meetings going all through the day all the time and and I'll read another little bit he says. He says, I can remember within 24 hours addressing eight different meetings in crowded churches, five times, twice out in the field, once down at the shore where men would come across a lot. There, old men, and they were sober that night. So many of them found a Savior that we followed them to a shore, and there we sang a psalm at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Before we left for their homes, my dear people, that's God at work. That's revival. Revival begins with God's people hitting their knees in prayer. And you know what? They had no opposition from the secular world. Their only opposition was from a couple churches who had one disagreement on a doctrinal point with them. That should that should bring shame. And um, I'll, I'll continue with... Something else Francis Chan said, and he wrote into this book. Francis Chan came out with a book called The Letters to the Church. He wrote this, I think, a couple years ago. Years ago, my friend from India drove me to a speaking engagement in Dallas. When he heard the music and saw the lights, he said, You Americans are funny. You won't show up unless there's a good speaker or a band. In India, people get excited just to pray. He proceeded to tell me, this is Francis Chan talking, how believers back home in India love communion and how they flock to simple prayer gatherings. Imagine God looking down on Asia and seeing people on one side of the earth gathering expectantly whenever prayer was happening. Meanwhile, on the other side of the planet in the U.S., people show up only for the most talented people in the atmosphere. It's embarrassing. David Platt echoes this when he says, "I am also struck by our reliance on upon having just the right speaker and just the right musician who can attract the most people to a worship service." And I'm going to read one more quote from Duncan Campbell, and he says, "You see, in Lewis and in the Highland generally, there would be no more; they would no more believe that you were a Christian." then they would believe that the devil was a Christian if you don't attend the prayer meetings. I agree with them. I certainly agree with them. When a soul is born again, suddenly there is created a hunger to be among the praying people of God. The prayer meetings were constantly crowded. You couldn't find a parish in Lewis that didn't have five prayer meetings going. It was stated in the midst of the movement there are more people attending the prayer meetings now then attend public worship on Communion Sunday. I've been looking for a church locally that spends time in prayer, and I cannot find one. I cannot find a church that breaks people up into groups and prays. And I'm going to read to you Acts from Acts 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, all of them with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brother. They built the church on prayer, not messages, not a pastor. Not any one man, and certainly not a worship band. They built that church on prayer. So here's what I'm going to offer you. On Wednesday nights at 6.30, I'm going to start holding prayer meetings. So for those of you who want to go all out and want to hit your knees along with us and want to start going after God and praying for, we we will pray for each other. We will pray for our state. We will certainly pray for our country. We'll pray for our churches. So Wednesday night at 6:30 in my office in Chandler, we're going to start having prayer meetings. So I'm challenging and inviting those of you who have a heart for this who really are serious about wanting to see change in our country. like I just shared with you the change, the parable change of God's presence falling on the Hebrides Islands. We need this so desperately right now, and we're in much worse shape than they were. So if you want to take part in these prayer meetings at my office, Please email us so we know how many people to anticipate. Email at blazinggrace.org. That contact information will be played again at the end of the broadcast. And, and for those of you who are outside of Arizona or outside of Phoenix, we have a Monday morning Zoom, not Monday morning, I'm sorry, a Wednesday morning Zoom prayer meeting. And I want to challenge you and encourage you to take part in that It starts at 7 a.m. U.S. Pacific time. The church must become a house of prayer. Every single church must put their people on their knees. We need this desperately right now. So let us know if you want to be part of this prayer meeting. And those of you in church leadership, I challenge you, put your people on their knees every single weekend service from now on. Thank you for joining me.
0: Do you want to be free?